You have broken the law, the 1971 Clean Air Act, but you're still putting a giant bullseye on your back if these are the products that you're manufacturing, selling, or installing. It's going to blow people's minds say this is probably the first time I've come out in public to tell the world that we don't build turbo manifolds anymore. We shut down turbo manifold fabrication. We shut down turbo kit fabrication. But if you're a turbo manifold builder or a turbo kit builder, you really do need to be aware of what's going on in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Eat Sleep Race podcast. I'm here with Brian ESR. I'm Frankie 5 ESR. And we have a special guest today, Jeff from Full Race. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for that, Frank. Actually, uh, you have a really cool last name. Um, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. It's it's Racer. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I lucked out. My, my uh, grandfather wasn't into racing. My dad wasn't into racing, but it just happened to fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> Jeff Race, Racer. Yeah, that's it. And not only is his name cool, the name of his company's cool. Yeah, Full Race. Let's start there. How did you come up with the name? I was in engineering school, and uh, I had a friend who saw some stuff I was making. He goes, you know what? You should call that Full Race. I was like, yeah, I should. <laughs> was, <it. laughs> was he even into racing? Yeah, he was hardcore. He had a, a little CNC machine, and he had a pretty crazy... Super early with a V8 swap and a 240Z back in the day. He had a LS and a Toyota 4Runner. The guy was ahead of his, of his time. So. And shout out to that guy. What's his name? Cause his name was Curtis. Curtis. I, don't know if, I can't remember his last name, but yeah, he had, back in the day, he had a shop in Arizona called Max Rev, and I hung out there all the time. That's another cool name. Yeah. Hey, so shout out to Curtis. What year was this? 1998, Wow. That's a long time. We've known you for a long time. Yeah, so I was in, in engineering school, started hanging out there in 99, and then around 2001, I probably made my first, like, full race manifold. And it, By yourself? I, at his shop. You know, I used his bandsaw. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just really kind of a forced passion because I wanted to make a Honda fast that would stop breaking. And at the time, everybody would turbocharge Hondas, and your manifold would crack. And... um there's just no way around it. If you wanted to have a fast Honda, you had to weld your manifold every time you raced. And I was like, well, if we just make it thicker, that'll fix that. And I made them thicker. And overnight, people from Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Europe, they were just throwing money at me. I was a 21-year-old kid. And, like, you know, it just seemed like a good idea. But, you know, now I look back, and it's pretty wild how many people I think that has influenced. There's a lot of fabricators and manifold and turbo kit builders all over the place. And, um... I really think that what happened in MaxRev in the back corner and then later in my uh, backyard of our rental house in Tempe, that, that really influenced a lot of guys. And even guys who used to work for us, uh, they now have their own shops building manifolds and kits. And so I, I really am glad that we were able to help a lot of people kind of find their groove and follow a dream. So that's so super inspirational. Then, 21 years old, right? 21 years old, no social media. So when you said everyone was, how did everyone find out about you? Social media back then was HondaTech.com. Yeah. Honda Tech was it, man. Everybody was on Honda Tech. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit later, but at that time, there wasn't anybody doing what we were doing. And so it was super unique and it was rare. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. And, um, you know, word travels fast when you're in a grassroots group of super passionate people early days of the internet you know there was no social media really so that was it there was people were always on honda tech just like they're on their newsfeed now let's go to the top of um so actually we skipped around a little bit so yeah. jeff talked about how he got started give us the rundown sell us on what is full race for anyone who's never heard about full race before so for people who have heard about full race my answer is probably going to be different than what you expect because what was full race 
um, was probably a turbo manifold builder. That That's probably how we're best known as, and maybe a turbo kit builder and maybe an intercooler builder. But uh, the fact is, Forest doesn't build turbo manifolds anymore. We shut down turbo manifold fabrication, and Forest doesn't build turbo kits per se anymore. We shut down turbo kit fabrication. And uh, this is a, a pretty big bomb. I'd say this is probably the first time I've come out in public to tell the world that we don't build turbo manifolds anymore. It's going to blow people's mind, but the fact is... Um, we can get into this in a little later, but uh, there's some really big regulatory stuff going on. And if you're a turbo manifold builder or a turbo kit builder, you really do need to be aware of what's going on in Washington, D.C. because the fight that's that's happening is, I don't want to call it, I wouldn't say we're losing it, but it, it is not going in your favor. And there's a lot more we can get to later in this call, but uh, I am... So we're now, this is our 20th year, Full Race's 20th year doing business. And uh, I intend to be, to have Full Race around for a long, long time. And the only way that happens, if you can have some certainty that you're compliant. If you are not compliant and you're the size of a company that we are and that we intend to be in the future, you're going to be on someone's radar eventually. And if you can't, if you can't follow the rules, then you're, you're going to be in a bad position. And we've seen it happen to people. And um, when we looked at our own businesses, we're like, okay, well, where are the, the possible, you know, points, failure points for this operation? And it was pretty crazy. We're like, wow, it's turbo manifolds and turbo kits. It's the thing that I just broke my back for two decades to become well-known for. And um, it took a lot to be able to shut that down. So we shut that down wow. on January 11th of this year. Wow. So what is Full Race now? So what Full Race is, is largely a turbocharger performance distributor. So we're one of Garrett's key partners, Borg Warner, uh, one of their key partners, Mitsubishi Turbo. I love Mitsubishi Turbo. They make all the OEM turbos for BMW, Honda, a bunch of other makes. So we're a key partner of, of theirs. And um, that has completely transformed our business. Um, and additionally, the marketplace has really changed. You know, I, I think a lot of people kind of find a car they like and they start racing it and they get stuck and it's really important to realize that the automotive aftermarket is a dynamic and constantly evolving marketplace and that the consumers have changed in the past it wasn't unheard of to spend three or five days installing a turbo kit and oftentimes somebody was going to put a turbo kit on their car their car was down for a year two years that's not acceptable anymore. I think the level of engineering has evolved such that the parts should be much easier to install. I think that if you can make a part that's direct fit, that produces similar or better performance than a hardcore one-year-long turbo install, then that's going to be perceived better. It's going to have a better user experience for the guy who's installing it. It's easier to tune. The tuners are familiar with it. And above all else, you have a chance of being legal that way. If you're putting a universal racing turbo for many of these turbo companies on your car, I'm going to bet that that's illegal. And my interpretation, which is not legal advice in any way, but my interpretation of this is that if you move or remove a catalytic converter, you have broken the law. The 1971 Clean Air Act, you violated that. And that is a big, big deal right now. Now, if you produce a part, that requires upon installation the installer to move or remove a catalytic converter, you both have broken the law. The manufacturer of that product who required that catalytic converter be removed upon the installation of that product, 
you have designed, engineered, built, and and shipped a non-compliant, non-conforming part that that tampers. And if you build it for a true race car, you're fine. But most of these guys, as we both know, aren't really building them for true race cars. And I really have an issue with that. And uh, I, I think it's really important that this industry starts to be aware of what these behaviors are doing because the regulators are sitting on YouTube and on Instagram. And they're going to watch what you put out and they're going to come knocking eventually. If they've determined that you're a gross offender, they're going to show up at your doorstep. And so you need to be aware of like, we have a responsibility, I believe, to keep this industry growing into the future. And the way that a lot of enthusiasts in this space act is very short-sighted. And um, I really do believe that this has to change because, you know, this is my passion. I love this space, but you got to be aware of it. So you talk about, you know, regulation and, and therefore making full race want to stop producing manifolds and now relying on companies to do that. Are they, do you, th are they thinking about that? Are they th thinking about the long term of regulation and making sure that their parts are sustainable? I can't speak for other people. I know that the people who I work with, many of them are investing in, in ways to to retain a stock catalytic converter because that's above all else is if you can retain a stock catalytic converter you have a chance of being legal let's just start there like if you have to remove a cat then you have a problem right and uh this might not sit well with a lot of people uh you know i i personally we made a lot of money selling downpipes with cats for years and now where we're at is i don't even want to sell downpipes with cats I want nothing to do with a catalytic converter. And yeah, there's companies who have 49 state legal cats and there's some great technology out there, but you're still putting a giant bullseye on your back if, if these are the products that you're manufacturing, selling, or installing. So does that mean you've done your due diligence for all the products that Full Race sells that the products you sell are compliant? So, so compliant is a relative term. Compliant could mean 50 state legal, which means you have a CARB EO. It could mean what SEMA is calling 36 state legal or SEMA compliant, which means you've passed all the testing to get a CARB EO. You just don't have the EO. You didn't want to spend, you know, whatever um, ransom uh, CARB is going to make you pay to get that get that number. But where I'm at is we have partners for these reasons. So Garrett, you know, we have an awesome turbo for the new Raptor and Raptor is a hot truck right now. And everyone with a Raptor is driving it on the street. Nobody drag races their Raptor. And in my humble opinion, the only solution for that truck, if it is not a legitimate race truck, is you can upgrade it if you keep stock cats. And really, you can upgrade it if you st keep stock cats and have a carb EO. And it gets tricky because, you know, Garrett now has an EO on these turbos and we can confidently ship them to the state of California. And they'll work great on a stock tune. But, uh, you know, nobody runs a stock tune. And so who's going to tune their car? I don't know. Most tuners actually won't tune cars in California for that matter. But if you're outside of California, you can at least get a custom tune. But that custom tune is not EO'd, probably. Maybe it is. In some instances, it is. But for the most part, it isn't. And so there's there's all this really kind of intricate web of what's going on. But in my mind, if we're selling a carb legal device, then we have kind of washed our hands of the liability that, that comes with it. And so you, you got to play the game carefully. You got to be really aware of what you're selling, how the end user is going to install it, and how the end user, end, end user is going to use it. So you could give us more detail about this, often seen on pretty much every aftermarket part for off-road use only. 
that disclaimer does not protect you at all. That does not protect you at all. Now, what is off-road use only? I mean, is it mean for track use only? So you're going to actually drive this car on the track? Well, the EPA stance is if you produce this vehicle, uh, this, this component for track use only, you should be able to record the VIN number of everybody's track car that bought that track use only part. And you should be held accountable that every, whatever you sold this year, you know, that it actually was used on the track. So we have this deal with Steph Papadakis. He's one of our sponsored with um, sponsored drifters with Frederick Osbo, and we've won Formula Drift the last couple of years. Now that started life as a production Toyota Supra with a VIN number. Now, technically it is illegal to remove the catalytic converter from that car, but because that car will never be driven on a public road, we're good. There's a pass, you know, and, and any of these legit track race cars, you're fine. And you know, that's, that's cool, but people are nuts and tracks are closing Yeah, and they're going to street race. And so there's, there's a real kind of butting of heads between what the 1971 Clean Air Act says about what's legal to use on a public roadway and what people are doing. And it's, it's, I can't imagine it getting better. I don't know for certain, but I, I can't imagine the RPM Act is actually going to pass. So I think the best thing to do is buckle up, make better decisions. You don't need a thousand horsepower four cylinder to go on the street. And I realized that when I was 17, I thought you did, but I'm 42 now and you don't need it. Like, you know, you can make a lot of power through a catalytic converter now and cats got better and engines got better and engine man, like the whole thing is, has changed. And I think that the psyche of the enthusiasts needs to evolve too. And, um, that's just my, my humble opinion. Um, it probably would be met with a lot of disagreement, uh, in the comments section after this, but yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, based off of what you're saying, it, it you know, race teams probably don't have to, but this probably hurts more of the grassroots racer who drives their car to the track, who uses their car as a daily car on top of it, racing it at the track here well, and there. What does hurts mean, right? It, it hurts him because he has to run a catalytic converter to drive on the track. Is that really hurting you? Now, if you're racing against guys who don't have cats, it's going to hurt you in the end result, but... There, there's so many issues. And if furthermore, racing on a cat, you're probably going to melt a cat, right? Cats melt, they fail. And so there's so many issues. Now, there are companies making racing cats, but they're very expensive. And grassroots racers, guys, just trying to afford a set of tires. Why does he want to spend money on a cat? And um, there's there's a lot more to unpack, I think, than than we could really fit in this in this call, but or in this podcast, rather. I, I, um, I've spent a lot of time on this. I've spent time at SEMA in Detroit, uh, in Indy, talking to people and t attended as many EPA sessions as I can to, to come away from it and just say that if you have a business that you value and is your sole source of income, you cannot install test pipes or cat deletes or anything that removes a cat. And you should not manufacture anything where the installation of that part requires the removal of a cat. And people are, are going to do what they want to do. You know, and they're going to take the risk they want to take. And if you're a small shop and, you know, maybe don't even have a business license, obviously you're never going to be <laughs> more than likely uh, on the receiving end of, of an uh, enforcement action. But if you touch diesel, oh, you're done. Do not mess with diesel, full stop. Spark ignition, gasoline, ethanol, okay, we're, we're talking about that here. But diesel, oh man, I won't sell a diesel turbo. I won't touch diesel. No way. So you throwing up a red flag for anyone involved in the turbo diesel business industry? Um, 
modification, turbos, any diesel emissions component, man, you are, you, you know this already. It's not like I got to tell you anything new. You've already been busted probably if you are legitimately doing that, or at least you're going to get a visit before too long. Like I can't think of any diesel guys I know that haven't already been, you know, <laughs> scared pretty, pretty legitimately. So yeah, I won't touch diesel though. So this seems to be your biggest challenge, right? Um, as a owner of a company, uh, let's let's try to look at it from a positive aspect. What are the best parts of, of of owning and running full race? So I was once told that the true definition of wealth is being able to do what you want when you want to do it, and I'm really really grateful that my life has been able to to consist of me doing the things that I want to do when I want to do them, and that doesn't mean, um, you know, I'd love to be on vacation right now. You know, but it, I'm I'm working, and uh, it doesn't mean you could just slack off because your future is is really defined by you. And um, I, I heard a story about there was this once this famous king. He was sitting in his throne, and he had a sword dangling above his head at all times. And uh, you know, people would always ask him, "Why is that sword dangling above your head?" And he's like, "It's just a reminder." You know, like you got to to realize that your actions will make or break you. And I think in business, it gets magnified, especially in small business, because small business is really, really risky. And I had everything going for me. I was in the right places at the right time. I mean, we, we had everything possible, every tailwind along the way, and it is still really, really hard. And furthermore, this industry is a low margin industry. It is perceived to be, uh, I think, glamorous and glitzy and fun, and it is to a certain extent, but the reality is it's a very low margin industry. And if you are looking to be in this industry, you need to be aware that your income is really limited unless you're a tuner. Tuners print money, make no, no qualms about it, but they're the ones who are going to be under the scrutiny of the EPA before the guy who makes, you know, an intercooler or something that's not EPA approved. There, there, there's levels to this. Number one, violators, diesel. Number two is tuners. Number three are capitalists. You know, it works its way down, but... Give us your top five. Of what not to do? Yeah. So here we go. Top five... Top five things not to do. Diesel emissions of any type. Performance. Diesel performance. That's, that's, that's number one. Number two, tuning. If you're a good tuner, stay off the radar. Don't post on social media. I've seen a lot of guys doing it, and it works great, but not a good idea. Number three, catalytes, a.k.a. test pipes. Not a good idea. Number four, any TGV delete. Like I've seen the Subaru, Subaru community um, has a, a bunch of TGV deletes, and Grimspeed got popped over this. And you know, there's there's a ton of stuff there. And number five is EGR deletes. Like anything that touches an emission system, you need to find something better to do. Go make a control arm or a sway bar or whatever. But you know. It works its way down and, you know, intakes and intercoolers and turbos and manifolds and even capacs are going to potentially need carb approvals in the future because they're going to change the way that the catalyst reacts with reduced back pressure. There's so much going on. So in the end, I, I honestly would say don't touch emissions components. If you want to get into this market, go do suspension or aerodynamics or chassis or lights find a larger total addressable market where you don't have to worry about the, the EPA. And when I started my company, it was definitely not a thing. Like nobody thought about the EPA was going to come after this micro segment called racing. And um, when you really look at the numbers, it it's largely this whole thing that we're dealing with is driven by diesel. And 
full stop, EPA will tell you that they believe there's half a million diesel trucks on the road with deleted emission systems. And that half a million diesel trucks is producing an equivalent emissions of 9 million diesel trucks. That's what happens when one diesel truck has its emissions stuff gutted. It, it produces 20x the emissions. And, um, you know, the story goes, I don't know if this is true or not, but the story goes that there is a group of people who were rolled coal on and they were very bitter about it. And that's what started this whole thing. And I don't know if there's fact, but I've heard it from reliable sources. Um, and yeah, diesel appears to be kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back in this whole, you know, whole deal. So since you don't do that, since full race doesn't do that anymore, um, what do customers, what do they call, what do they reach out to full race for? If yeah, they so, want? so the business has changed. Um, I hesitate to call it distribution, but we are turbo specialists and above all else, what we do is we specialize in performance turbocharging. Now there's a lot of guys who sell turbos, but what we sell is first of all, expertise. You can call us and we can actually do a calculation, a mathematical calculation of what this thing is going to do. And I think that that's very rare. The majority of the people who buy turbos in this space buy them because their friend ran it and it worked good and I want that same turbo. Or this guy went super fast in the quarter mile, that's the turbo to get. And there is so much more to consider. Altitude, displacement, maximum engine speed, fuel used. You know, there's there's a huge amount of data that that can affect how a turbo system is going to respond and i would say 99.9 percent .9 of this industry just turns a blind eye to that compressor maps most people don't know or care what a compressor map does but i'll tell you if you're going to go spend thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours putting a turbo on a car you should probably know how this thing is going to behave before you make that investment and we all know guys who've built something only to rip it apart and rebuild it and then rip that apart and rebuild it. And that can all be avoided if you crunch a couple numbers. And it's not like crazy cuckoo math in La La Land. Like it's really simple math. And there are spreadsheets available. Borg Warner has a website called Matchbot. Garrett has a thing called Boost Advisor. And while they're completely different in function, the end result is is fairly accurate. And um, the resolution and, and the the quality of the data that gets outputted is only as good as the data that gets inputted. I can do a pretty solid match in about 10 minutes. So like, you know, you could go tell me you have a V12 Bentley and you want to make 1500 horsepower. Well, it is no more difficult to make that match than it is a 400 horsepower Honda Civic match. It's just numbers. What types of questions are getting asked there? So let's say I live in New Jersey. I have, you know, a FK8 Type R and I want to go faster. Do I just go to full, can I go to full race live chat or give you guys a call and say, do you have a kit for me? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is more often than not a very simple answer. So one of our top selling uh, turbos is a bolt on plug and play turbo for the FK8 Type R. No way. Yeah. Uh, we get it manufactured by Mitsubishi Turbo. They're the OEM manufacturer for Honda. It's produced on the same exact production line as the OEM Turbo. I don't think we've had a single one fail. I, I can't count how many we've sold. It's insane. And the turbos fit on Honda Accord Sports and RDXs and CRV. It fits on all this different stuff. But, you know, the beauty of it is it's a perfect form factor for the OEM turbo. So it's plug and play and retains all the emission stuff. And if the guy's got an intake from PRL and a intercooler from whoever, like the thing just fits and it's plug and play for stock. And so we've had guys install these in like an hour and a half. 
it's wild. It, it's so easy. And and I think the game has kind of changed. You can make 500 plus horsepower like that. You think about how much work you had to put into a Honda Civic to make 500 horsepower. Now it's stock motor, stock tranny, stock clutch, stock axles, plug and play turbo with a tune. And it's like the game has definitely changed. And I, I feel like um, this is a, this speaks closely to us because we just discontinued an EFR kit for the FK8. We just discontinued our G25 kit for the FK8. And yeah, they were used on legit racing applications in some instances, but we don't really, you don't have a control. Maybe that guy goes and resells it somewhere else. But I will tell you that every time you install the MHI FK8 Turbo, you have to have all the emissions because that's how it, it bolts up. So yeah, that, that's the game. And same thing with Raptors. You know, we've been selling intercoolers for Raptors and F-150s for a long time. And now we have this carb-approved Garrett thing. And like the sales go up, the user experience goes up. The installation costs go down, easy as can be for someone to tune it. So yeah, that's where I really think that the business is going. So yeah, listen, we we will continue to support and sell racing turbos. That is our our heart and soul, and our really how we made our name. And we've got a lot of shops who will be you know building a variety of different race cars. Um, what's interesting is the amount of V8 customers we get. Uh, we're not a V8 company. We've never supported V8s in terms of hardware or product. But when it comes to matching a V8, you'll have guys with nine liter engines or five liter engines or four liter engines. They're all over the place. And some are going to 6,000 RPM, some are going 10,000 RPM. When it comes to that stuff, they really do need somebody who can crunch the numbers for them because there's such a wide variety of what's going on in the V8 world that when you call full race, we'll tell you what this thing's going to do in terms of back pressure and like where it's going to choke and where you're going to run out of steam. And we can, we can do that pretty quickly. So uh, it's not to say that uh, we're the only people that can do it, but I don't know any other uh, turbo specialist distributors that are doing that. Have you guys uh, dabbled into the UTV world? A little bit. Um, you know, UTVs are are still under the guise of the EPA. And so I have looked at that space. I think there's a lot of bolt-on plug-and-play upgrades available. There's a lot of full turbo kits available. There's no question it's growing. But really where, where um, our focus is right now is on late model automobiles and no insoles we have never installed anything though because you guys have we're in new jersey right now but your facility is actually in arizona yep yep i live in in new jersey i commute to phoenix i've been out there about a week ish a month for the last little while um but yeah i, I started it when i was in arizona state engineering school so never really anticipated that i would own a business in arizona my wife and i are both from the same neighborhood in jersey and our families are, are here, so um, yeah, in 2015, 2016, I moved back here full-time. I think um, we know why you probably were out in Arizona, but you know, for people out there, why, why Arizona and why not New Jersey for your business? Uh, there's a lot of reasons. Um, well, for, for one, we started in Arizona, and when you have a lot of manufacturing equipment, it, it's anchored and you have this big investment and in argon and all this stuff but above all else it is a lot less expensive to run a shop in arizona and we have a very large facility in phoenix that same facility in new jersey would probably be four possibly five x the cost of what what we currently pay so um a variety of things There's east coast in general especially northeast i should say is is hostile to low margin businesses like the automotive aftermarket so 
being that the business has been in Arizona for so long and you've been in New Jersey for so long, founder of Full Race, what is your role today? Um, my role is defined as a visionary, and we subscribe to a system called EOS. And I don't know if anybody listening knows the system. It's also known as Traction. Uh, I don't talk to a lot of people about this, but it's completely transformed the way I look at every aspect of my business, and I'll probably ever look at, at business for the rest of my life. And uh, EOS stands for Entrepreneurial Operating System. And what it is, is um, it's kind of a cherry-picked best practices from the greatest business minds that I'm aware of. If, if you know the book, Good to Great, um, The Five Habits of an Extraordinary uh, Executive. There, there's a few legendary business topics and EOS kind of took, just cherry-picked the best practices from a variety of different things and culminated them to a, into a system. And what that's allowed my team to do is become really aligned. And um, the, the core tenant of EOS is that a business needs a visionary and an integrator. The visionary sees the future and sees the role of the company and, and how customers are evolving. And, and you're constantly adapting and adjusting, course correcting to try and uh, fit what is coming down the road. The integrator makes it happen. And so my guy, Matt Sanner, he is the man. Um, I would be a hot mess without Matt. And we are polar opposites. We butt heads all the time. We see the world through completely different eyes. Like it, it's so crazy that we live on the same planet because like, I mean, you know, it. people have different personalities. And for me to do his job, I would fail miserably. For him to do my job, he would fail miserably. And we really do balance each other out. And um, yeah, I, I do feel that he, and also my my um, my head of logistics operations is, is Colin. Uh, Matt and Colin are my two right-hand guys. So I would definitely be a lot more uncomfortable sitting here in a warehouse in New Jersey if it weren't for, for the the core team that I have out in Arizona. So let's get into entrepreneur, small business question here. You started this off 21 years old by yourself, very successful company to this day, 20 years later. How did you evolve from being by yourself to growing your team? So very successful is a relative thing. I realized that, you know, you guys, the perception is we've grown and grown and grown, but the truth is I was really lucky. Like I've, I've been just, I had tailwinds and I look back, I can't imagine being moderately successful unless you have luck because I was lucky that my father and my, my mother were both entrepreneurial themselves and they pushed me in this direction. You know, like I, when I was 20 something years old, I didn't have the audacity to think I could start a business and, and have it work. And then my dad worked for me for years for free. I don't think we ever paid him. It was crazy. Like he just was there to help me and he was successful. My family was kind of very fortunate that he didn't have to take a check from full race. So I was really grateful because he helped me lay a foundation. Um, you know, and, uh, what was he doing for you? Back office, HR, um, accounts payable, just the stuff that a visionary like me shies away from because I want to make cool stuff. You know, I want to do things and make things and create. Would you credit your dad to building your team? Oh, absolutely. Oh, but to the team that is today, my dad stepped back. He, he's a lot older now, but to the early days, absolutely. He was he was part and partial. He was my partner and my confidant. I could I could you know trust him. I still do. Like we we talk all the time. But um, you know, I, if I didn't have him, it would have been tough. He was my my interim integrator before I had even heard the word integrator. He was my he would balance me out and, and able to support that. So it is really hard to start a business. It's 
it's almost impossible to start a manufacturing business in the United States. There's obviously caveats there. You can do it, but you got to be aware it's a grind. And if you don't have um, all these kind of things come together, you could find yourself in a period of headwinds. But, you know, if you have the ability to kind of power through that, uh, you can come out on the other side in a really good spot. How did you find your two right hands? When did they join you and where did they come from? A variety of, of ways. I've, I've, I found the two good guys by going through a hundred bad guys. You know, I just, I had a lot of people come and go over the years and um, sometimes people stick together. And in EOS, they say that it comes down to what your core values are. And most companies, I would probably say, never really thought about what are our core values. But the idea is, what is it that makes someone come to our company and work here and say, yeah, this is for me. I want to be here. I'm willing to make this my career. And if you don't have alignment, um, it's it, it just doesn't happen. And alignment is hard one. I was, you know, so a visionary, one of the characteristics of us is we're optimistic and we think uh, things are going well. And sometimes a lot of time, a lot of times I think business owners think things are going fine and they'll get a rude awakening. You know, maybe they get a key employee who quits and, and you know, whatever. But alignment is really one of the root um, causes of, of a business failing or, or maybe just struggling per se. When the business owner is going north and then maybe his mechanic is going east and the sales guy is going west and then you got, uh, you know, whatever, the guy who's buying product, he's going south. Your boat is not going anywhere. You need everybody in that boat rowing in one direction. And the only way that happens is when you set a vision that's shared by all members of the team. And I did not do that. I thought I did for many, many years. I think now we're good. I, I know we are because um, because we've subscribed to EOS in a, in a very big way. But uh, we were really fortunate. The Arizona Department of Commerce gave us, basically sponsored us. They gave us a very large, generous training grant that allowed us to hire a professional EOS implementer. And that was a game changer for my team. And we're still going through the process. We've, we've made massive, massive changes. But I will say unequivocally, my team would not have been able to have the balls to shut down manufacturing had it not been for this alignment. We were dead 100% in agreement like this sucks we do not want to do this but we have to we have no choice this is our career we're not going to stop doing this so send it so how long how long have you been using this eos methodology so how long is a relative term because i self-implemented it very poorly in 2018 i read the book i watched the videos i was like yeah we can do this and we made an okay difference uh, one day I was sitting at SEMA and Martin Musial from AMS walks up to me. He's like, so what do you think about EOS? I was like, it's really funny. You should ask me this. I said, I think it's a game changer and I think it's changed my business for the better. I said, but I know there's still a lot of room for improvement. And so that was 2018. Then fast forward to 2021, Arizona Department of Commerce shows up. Um, and and admittedly, I made a lot of changes. When when I learned about EOS and I self-implemented it. I was like, wow, we, we really need to fix a few things. So I fixed things as much as I could. And I had the perception that I'd really gotten things solid. But once, once this Department of Commerce training grant came in and then we brought in a professional EOS implementer, it really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, like you cannot be a self-implementer. It doesn't work because I'm just too close. You need someone who's completely removed, unbiased with no 
you know, agenda or preconceived notions of what is going on. You need that person to implement EOS because me implementing it and everything going on in my head, it, it wasn't the same. And so once we brought him on, his name was Jeremy. Um, yeah, I, I really believe that was kind of what, what took things to the next level. Was that just luck again that the Department of Commerce came to your business? Yeah, because I couldn't have afforded Jeremy. Like Jeremy charges $800 now or something crazy. But how did they end up at your shop? Pure luck. Dude comes knocking. Rodney. Rodney's the man. Shout out to Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, it, it's hard to say because if you told me- I wonder if every state does that. So it, it, maybe they do. This is called the MEP. I think most states have a manufacturer's extension partnership. Now, if you are a legitimate manufacturer, you can apply for MEP. And um, I don't know how New Jersey works, but um, every state is definitely different. But that's what this was. So the MEP is Division of Arizona uh, Commerce. Any business owner, anyone wanting to start a business in you know the performance automotive industry, they need to listen to this podcast. You're just dropping a lot of gems right now, and you know it's it's even eye opening to how we run this business. And I'm actually curious. Your two right hand guys were they in automotive before? That were yeah, they? So did I'll they just tell you what? Buy? If you're not in automotive you're not going to make in this industry because if you don't eat, sleep, breathe this stuff, the margins are too tight, the pay is too small, and the hours are too long. And we have gone through a lot of guys at Full Race over the years, and we've brought guys in who weren't hardcore auto dudes, and they're not going to stick around because this sucks. Like, it is hard work. Aside from the glitz and the glam, we're sitting here in a warehouse. You know, like, this is just some guys in a warehouse. This isn't that glamorous and when you do this day after day after day after day you know if, if you don't love it you're not doing it you're done you're out and so that's the truth is if if you have this kind of dysfunction like i have and you guys obviously do where this is where i'm gonna spend my time uh, my time here on this planet it's, it's very limited we're only here for a few years and um that's this is the the mark i'm gonna make no, I think you got to make a choice. And if, if you've decided that you love this industry and you really enjoy turbocharging and you fit our core values, you're not an egotistical prick. And like, we've got a few things I'm not going to go into right now, but you know, like if you fit, then yeah, you could probably hang out a full race and find a fulfilling career. But if you don't, you're going to do yourself a disservice by working for full race because you're not into it. And then you're going to do full races disservice because you're not into it. So it's like, dude, just save yourself the, the headache. And one of the things of EOS is, do not hire people that don't fit your core values because you can be guaranteed on day one it's not going to work. And very recently, we had an awesome experience. We hired a guy who didn't fit our core values. And on day one, he was acting like he did. And on day two, he didn't show up. It was the best possible scenario. We're like, dude, perfect. It spit him right out. The, the power of networking, I'm a firm believer, you know, do you believe in networking over education in terms of building a career? And if so, did that apply to your business and hiring your staff? I don't know that I've ever heard the phrase networking over education. I am very, very strongly um, held that education is critical. And if I didn't have the education I have, I would not have the network I have. So I'm an engineer by training, by, by formal education, but uh, in 2015, maybe 2016, I took a online class called Alt MBA. It is from a guy named Seth Godin, who's considered one of the marketing gurus online. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but uh, Alt MBA. I was in the third 
class and it started, I think he had to read like 12 or 15 books before the class started. And the class was six weeks long. I probably spent between eight and 12 hours a day on this material. And it they call it um, drinking from a fire hose. I don't have time for two years to go get an MBA, but I had a month and a half I could burn. And so I, I read all these books and I powered through this thing. And on the other side of it, my, my brain was completely changed. I would never, ever look at business or finance or anything ever again. So I will tell you that unequivocally, if I didn't have my engineering background, uh, I probably couldn't have, have done what I did with Full Race in the early days. And if I did not get this MBA experience, I could not do what with Full Race what I'm doing currently. You know, it's interesting that you say that because that um, right where I got that from was a Instagram post that said, I believe something like 56% of college students believe that, or 56% of people in a career believe you no longer need to go to college. So college is not education. I think that college, what we call college, is becoming an elitist institution the costs of college are ramping up. It's so funny. If you look at the cost of a flat screen TV, it just drops off to zero. Like you can go buy a TV that fills your entire wall for a hundred bucks in a couple of years. You want to spend a semester at college? Well, now we're talking 50 grand. You know, it's like, it doesn't even make sense. I don't understand how anybody could afford college in this day and age. I got little kids, you know, I'm going to have to deal with this at some point, but yeah, college is not what it used to be, but education, education is everything. So you know, if, if you want to get some crash courses in education, you've got the time, I would encourage you to check out Section 4, which is Scott Galloway, or Alt-MBA, which is Seth Godin. Um, I'm sure there's some other stuff out there, but but for me, those were the two most significant things that I've programmed my brain with. Yeah, that, I think, you know, you you really classified, you if you want to become a manufacturer, you don't have to go to college, but you have to get the education to understand what you want to develop. Well, manufacturing... Or building something, building something. If build you want to create, yeah, create something. You know, I don't necessarily have to go to MIT to create something. I need to go to the right places to learn it, and that's how, and that's your definition of education. Yeah. So, because of that, what would you tell our future here if they want to, if they have a, if they have a vision of something that they want to do? From your perspective and things that you've learned along the way, what were what would be like the two two to three things that you would say for a young individual to do? All right, I got two things here. I wrote down. So, yeah. So if you want, if you got two things to think about, real long and hard before you're going to start a business, the first thing is called barrier to entry. If you can be copied, you should not start that business. If you are going to start a business, it means you're going to develop and invest your time, resources, money in an asset and that asset is supposed to grow in value over time and an appreciating asset grows in value and a depreciating asset loses value. You do not want to own a business that loses value. And if you do not have a defensible market position, um, don't take offense, but eat, sleep, race, let's call it eat, sleep, drift. I remember when I saw those guys, I'm like, <laughs> if you don't have a defensible market position and whatever your business model is, you got a problem and you should not start your business full stop. If I were to start full race today, I would be an idiot. There's a hundred guys probably within a few hours of here that can make a turbo manifold or a turbo kit. That is not the bottle. If you, if, if you have an Instagram, a welder and a grinder, you are perceived to be a competitor full race. 
dude, we had a whole fabrication team. We had liquid argon and special welders and robots, all this stuff. But dude, I have an Instagram and this is what I made. You don't see how the sausage gets made. You just see, I've got sausage. I'm just as good as Purdue or whoever. Like, And the fact is, that is a question you need to ask yourself before you start your business. Is, is this defensible? Is this something that anybody can go copy? And, um, you know, it's tough. It's, it's really hard to find something because if you aren't building a defensible position in the market, you need to stop what you're doing and, and go figure out how to do it. Um, the next one is leverage and focus. Uh, I think that um, what you focus on and what you leverage is going to greatly dictate your future because, as I mentioned, there's only so many hours in the day. And if you spend your time trying to make, you know, a buzz on social media, you're probably going to waste your time. But if I could, on the other hand, go to Mitsubishi Turbo Engineers and say, hey, the new Civic Type R is going to come out next year. I think we should do this project. And like, there's nobody else that could have sat down with these Japanese executives from Mitsubishi and convinced them to do it. And that's my leverage. I'm able to sit down with high level turbo engineers and whatever, C level, whoever's and get them to see the world in the way I see it. And so if you don't have leverage, well, you need to find leverage. You need to find a defensible position and then figure out whatever leverage you've got and work it. But it is, business is, is harder today than I think it's ever been. But at the same token, it's also easier because the opportunities that are afforded to you, if you're a guy with a saw and a grinder, you can now be competitors to full race. In the past, you know, it was it was a whole lot harder to get noticed. And, you know, um, look at the hip hop world or, or even just like any recording artists. It's like their world has been turned upside down by social media. And the new music stars are actually TikTok stars or like, it, it's just, it's so crazy. So yeah, the opportunities abound. But you have to keep in mind barrier to entry, leverage, and focus. If you have the ability to to stay focused, choose something with leverage, and then make it very difficult for somebody else to get in, then you have a business that's worth pursuing. Does AI change the turbo business? I mean, AI probably changes a lot of things, but at the end of the day, turbochargers, I don't know that the turbo business is going to change by it. It's, it's real hard to say. I, I think, you know... The permutations of it and the implications of AI are huge. I just, I don't see it having a big impact in non-software product. So, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of good memories and, and thoughts of your company here. What, hopefully you quantify this, but what would be your, your top three most memorable experiences running full rate? Or maybe top three achievements. Top three achievements, you know, moments, achievements. It, it might be crazy. I don't, I don't look at the past. I mean, it, it's pretty wild. I just think of where we're going. I, I don't delve in the past. Uh, I just keep going forward. So there's a lot of great stuff in my, in my past. Um, I've had a lot of fun and built a lot of projects. But yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm just, I'm really excited where things go. I, I don't even want to even look back. Wow, that's a, that's a different perspective there. Very different. I, I feel that the past is behind you. It cannot be changed. A lot of people live in the past and get stuck in the past, but you know what? The past doesn't matter. The future is uncertain and unknown, and anybody who tells you they know the future, they're full of it. I mean, you can see things coming to a certain extent, but with certainty, no, there's no certainty. And so the present moment is really the only thing you got to work with. So 
would there be anything within the 20 years of your career that you're like, that was cool? I mean, honestly, I, I, I really do feel that I was instrumental in helping a kind of ushering in what might be considered turbo supremacy. You know, for years, turbos were unreliable and black magic and voodoo and, you know, people had nitrous and superchargers and blah, blah, blah. And everyone knew turbos could go fast, but I, I think that there are so many challenges with reliability. Um, you know, I, I've, I've really solved a lot of that stuff quietly from the backside. I've been involved with, uh, you know, Garrett on the G-Series or Borg Warner on things and Mitsubishi on these various turbos, BMW's turbos. And there's just so much that I think I've done behind the scenes that has really kind of evolved the the state of the turbocharging industry. And I, I hope above all else, I've helped people make a career doing what they love. Like that's, that's really it for me is if I've helped other people be happy then I'm stoked, I'm fine. I don't know if you, you want to go into or allowed to go into, but you went from making manifolds as a teenager or, you know, in 21 years old into consulting, if not working for the biggest turbo manufacturers in the world. Are you allowed to talk a little bit about that, of how that ended up happening and how, you know, a lot of people today running turbos need to, you know, give credit to what you've put into the technology that we have today? I appreciate that, but I don't want credit. They don't need to give me credit. Um, I just, I know that my DNA is in certain places and makes me smile, but yeah, I was real lucky. And the fact is they come to you. You can't knock on Garrett's door and say, I'd like a distribution agreement, please. They come to you. And these are big companies. You know, actually, I think it's important to talk about this for a second. So Garrett, I think they made 14 million turbos last year. Borg Warner, 12 million turbos last year. Mitsubishi, 7 to 8 million turbos last year. Wow. That is called a tier one supplier. And the infrastructure required to produce that level of product <laughs> with a virtually negligible failure rate, it's massive. Now, most of the aftermarket guys, maybe they make 2,000 turbos a year, maybe 3,000. And maybe the biggest guy in our space is doing 5,000 turbos a year. Like, that's just, there's a rift. Like, everybody's here, and then you've got Mitsubishi Garrett Board Warner here. And um, I am very intimately familiar of the differences and what you get when you buy a small guy's turbo versus a massive company's turbo. And the differences are significant, which is the entire reason Forrest has never had a full race turbocharger. Because I know exactly what the differences are. And I can't put my name on, on the little small guy stuff. Now, there is some exceptions to the rule. I'm extremely excited about Zona Rotor. I think those guys have some really cool stuff going on. But the fact remains is if you're a small operation, it is really, really hard to make headway in this space if, if you don't have robots assembling your turbo like all those guys do. You go to Asheville, North Carolina, where Borg Warner is, and it is crazy. Just robots grabbing turbine wheels, putting them into shafts and assembling them, then torquing them, and then balancing them, and then moving them to the next thing. It is fully automated. And, you know, I, I really do believe that you can't cheat your way there. Uh, so you mentioned... Um... You sponsor uh, Steph Papadakis. How, how did that come about? So Papadakis has been running our turbo manifolds for many, many years, and it was real simple. Everything else cracked. And if you want to win a drift championship or a drag champ or whatever, rally champ, it doesn't matter. You can't have parts crack. 
any failure point has to be addressed because if it isn't addressed, it's going to cost you a championship. And so we had just known Steph for many years. He's like, hey, Jeff, I know you don't make one-offs. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll do a one-off for you. So we did one one-off for him. And this was on Ospos original Corolla, which is now um, Turk's Corolla. Or may, maybe there's a couple of Corollas in between that, but one of the Corollas, whatever. And we made it and the thing worked great. And Steph was like, holy crap, this thing works. He's like, you're my guy. And so at that point on, Steph and I have had a great relationship. We chat all the time. Um, I mean, he'll just call me out of the blue and we'll bullshit. And, you know, I really do believe that the engineering work that we did on that Toyota Super kit was the finest kit to ever come out of full race. Uh, we had an engineer working for us for a while named Matt Velders. The kid was a beast. And this was his his baby, this super kit. And he did an awesome job. It was the best kit to ever come out of full race. And I'm still super, super bummed that we discontinued it in January because this kit was amazing. The car's been out for one year. We won Formula Drift a couple times in a row. There's guys running this kit going like eights. I think um, uh, Mike Body went sevens with it. I mean, it's it's awesome kit, but... You know, we we had to walk away. So uh, the the Ospo deal with with Papadakis, we're still supporting him in some capacity. We built a few extra manifolds before we shut down and gave them out to those guys. But um, yeah, I don't really know where it's going to go in the future. But I will say, every time Steph wants to make a change to his engine or change to his turbo, he says, "Hey Jeff, what's it going to do?" And I can tell him with confidence, "Do this or don't do it." And he's like, "Okay." And uh, I don't know anybody else. He doesn't know anybody else that he could call. And, and no, hey, I want to try this housing or try this turbine or try this compressor. What's it going to do? And I'll tell them in a few minutes. In your history of sponsoring racers, have you ever sponsored anyone who has walked up to you with a proposal? And if, if so or if not, what would you give advice to somebody who is trying to get sponsored? Sponsorship is a really slippery slope because most people who want sponsorship cannot afford the product. And if you cannot afford the product, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to deliver on the sponsorship obligations that are expected of you by your sponsor. Most people who want sponsorship are grassroots racers trying to get started. I get it. I was there myself. And um, yeah, sponsorship, you, you have to be willing to realize that that person who sponsored you or who you're asking for sponsorship is making a vote. They're, they're putting their money on the line that you are going to give them a return. There's no other reason for a business to give somebody product, cash, cash equivalents, whatever. It's that you are going to give them a return on their business and that you're going to go out of your way to make it worth their while and then some. And very rarely is that actually the... Um, kind of mindset of the people asking for the sponsorship. Usually it's, I just want stuff, I can't afford it, or I don't want to pay for it. And I think that that's toxic, old, and it makes you look very immature. But I get it, and I've been there. And some people do have real value. Some people do have an actual value proposition where it's like, yes, I want to be on that person's vehicle. But more often than not, it's, well, I'm known on Instagram and blah, 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 you know. Now, furthermore, there's different types of sponsorships. And if I were to quote sponsor somebody, I would prefer somebody who is defined as a micro influencer with maybe 15,000 to 30,000 um, followers who's super passionate about, let's say, FKA type R's. And they have a following. They've been in the FKA community and they've tried the other things and they've blown them up. And now they're finally like, oh, yeah, I've whatever uh, this following and I'm 
they're interested in our product. That makes sense. But to go after a larger uh, Adam LZ type person, like you're just wasting your time. There's there's nothing to talk about there. Has in your history of sponsoring people, has it always been you you know of them and then you you know you work with them, or has there ever been a case of hey, I'm Joe Schmo, this is me, can you sponsor me? It's been a topic of other podcasts of you know going to trade shows or going to events and you know. I may not know this guy at this company, but I, I do want to work with him. I do have some value. So there's there's been, we've heard it from both angles. I don't it think does it does work and it doesn't if work. you can deliver real tangible value, it's game on. Because the fact is marketing is very challenging in this, in this uh, industry. There's very few marketing tactics and strategies that actually work because this industry is real, recognized real and authenticity above all else. And if you get somebody who uses your product and loves it and tells everybody they know that they use it and they love it, they are worth it in spades. But most people are like, I don't want to tell them what I'm running. And like, it's like, dude, why did we sponsor you? <laughs> right. No, I like that. It goes, it goes along the lines of, you know, previous podcasts. And I think the most important takeaway here is value. You have to provide value and you can't just you shouldn't try to get sponsored for things you can't afford. That's right. Yeah, like listen, I I need a set of cams for an engine, and I am happy to pay for them. And I had uh, um, one of my contacts at Kelford's like, Jeff, dude, we'd love to be part of this project. I'm like, cool. I was gonna buy them anyway. I bought Kelford cams for my Evo. I was gonna buy them for this RV, and he's like, no, man, I, I really want to work with you. And the fact is, I'll probably sell a few sets of Kelford cams for him. And people are like, oh, the Floris guys were on the Kelfords, and they didn't blow up. Yeah. probably a good thing, you know? And so that's a different deal. But at the same token, you know, I think you, you look at what most people are asking for and that's probably more rare than it is common. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What is uh, your most memorable build in the past 20 years? Have, has any stood out? Like, I, I think my R14, so that was the 240SX I converted to all-wheel drive RB26 in 2005. And I have had a love-hate relationship with that car. Um, I don't know if anybody knows RB26s, but they have shim under buckets and they spit shims out at high RPM. And I'm the the guy who just broke my motor, spitting shims out every single time. And Head Games got the thing figured out, which was you use a 2JZ shimless bucket, problem solved. And of course he figured that out after I was like, dude, I've had it. I put the car in a shipping container. I'm going to worry about it later. So I parked it in 2015 it's been in a shipping container for eight years i pulled it out put it on the lift like a couple months ago starting to put it back together brought the head over to dave gonna do a whole kelford setup but i mean i love that car that car just terrifies me but the problem is and if any rb26 fanboys are on here uh i, I apologize when you have this giant lump of iron in front of your front tires it makes it so that you have a giant like push and uh, on the track in Phoenix that we used to race on, Firebird, uh, rest in peace, but the straightaway was the drag strip, and then there was a hard left turn. So at the end of the straightaway, we were going like 165, 170, and then you do a hard left turn. Because the RB was so heavy, I completely obliterated my right front tire in like three laps, and my other three tires were perfect. And that's the reality of a any RB26 power car, is it is a giant hunk of iron, and it handles like not that well it has some traction but uh, i also have an evo 8 that is 
my my baby. So I really love my Evo. That thing is phenomenal. I'll probably never sell the Evo. Probably never sell the the R14. But um, yeah, those those two are my favorites. Wow. Which uh, which model Evo? I don't know. I I, I mean it's <laughs> beyond whatever it started as. I don't even know what it is anymore. What year, what year was oh, it? Oh three. Oh three. Okay. Yep. Yep. I bought it fully, stitch welded it. Uh, did everything then did it again and carbon diffs and triple carbon clutch the car is like an animal and rotates like it's rear wheel drive but hooks up like it's all wheel drive so yeah that thing is my my most favorite car of it, it's literally just it's a rally car and it has a cat i put a cat in it <laughs> as being an advocate for the industry you know like you said earlier in the podcast you want to do this for a very long time you want to make sure racing stays around what what could you say to an enthusiast and maybe two different topics here to the enthusiast and then to the business owner, like this is what you need to do in the short term to make sure there is going to be racing in the future. Because we had, you know, everybody sign up for the RPM act. We need, we need this to pass. And a lot of people took that very lighthearted and there are advocates like John Pooley at turn 14 who, you know, he's raising funds because he's on a different level of, you know, approaching it from, you know, the Congress level and from the government side that, you know, the normal enthusiast is, it's way over their head. But for them to realize, like, listen, if you don't have guys like John Pulley supporting and advocating for you, you're not going to have a scene and much racing to attend in the future, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, talking about about John, I assume that it's it's impacted his business and the products that they're willing to stock and resell. They have to be very uh, particular and and uh, careful. But I, I think that we we need to have a shift. A lot of people's mindset is doesn't matter to me. They're not going to get me, and that's just not cool. Like I I think that probably a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but I think that needs to change. I, I really do believe you should be responsible and you should be stewards of this industry, ambassadors of this industry, and actually give a shit enough that you want this thing to last and you realize that behaving the way we have been behaving is is not in the best interests. Is there anything from the enthusiast side, you know, grassroots driver, you know, daily enthusiast that we could be doing so so i i also think it's important to differentiate that there's different types of grassroots drivers there's drag racers there's drifters there's autocrossers and track days and all these other types of activities and it's 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 sad to be because i started out as a drag racer you know we all met up at english town back in the day hanging out there every weekend every wednesday and friday and testing tuners and it was like drag racing was everything but the market has changed the racing venues have changed and I think that the people also really need to start looking at themselves long and hard and, and consider changing because if you get stuck, you're not doing anything, yourself, anyone a favor. Like the industry has evolved. Drag racing, it's cool, but it's not everything, you know? And um, a lot of people were super against drifting, if you recall, when drifting came out and they called it ballet in cars and it's still a stupid. Well, I'll tell you what, you go to a drag strip, it's not that packed anymore. Like there, I saw IFO had a real good turnout, and there's, dude, Formula Drift is sold out. Like, people can't get enough of drifting, and so if you are anti-drifting, you probably should just check yourself and realize that, well, things have changed and things have evolved, and drifting is actually pretty fun and pretty cool. And um, you know, 
listen, there's always going to be curmudgeons and people who just are Luddites and don't want to evolve with the time. But um, yeah, I, I really do believe that you, you should really consider what, what are you doing? Like if you're grassroots, what are you doing? If you're going to be a grassroots drag racer, is there actually a drag strip near you? Because what do we have, Atco? That's it. That's it. Chris Miller's been putting on some good events. And dude, if you want to race, by all means, go drag race. But you got to realize you're probably going to need a trailer. Echo ain't close. <laughs> we're, we're out there. So you're out in the sticks. Yeah. yeah. You know, in, in Arizona, I don't think we have a drag. We got Wild Horse Pass for a little while longer. That's that's Firebird. They opened another track in Casa Grande, which is pretty far away. So if you're in a Phoenix, if you want to drag race, you're going to need a trailer. And, you know, there'll always be some extent of guys who drive their cars to the track, but horsepower has been democratized. You can go to your Dodge dealership and go buy a Hemi Charger Red Eye Hellcat, whatever. Yeah. It's, you know, a GT500 Mustang and a RTR. Like, horsepower is, is, is different than where we came from in the early 2000s for sure. So, yeah, man, I, I just, I really would ask people to check yourself, look long and hard into your soul and be like, what are you doing? Because you got to realize that if you're if we're behaving the way a lot of stuff's been going down, you see the stuff on on Instagram and social media. It's like, dude, what are these idiots doing? They're making things so much worse for us than they need to for nothing. Just to be a bunch of idiots. You you can be respectful. You can hold events. You don't have to act like just total morons. And I'm not saying that that everybody does, obviously, but you guys realize that that that's the stuff that gets gets us in trouble, gets us national public uh, hate you know, from the media and yeah. the general public. So you mentioned, you know, we did meet drag racing. You mentioned drifting. Are there any other types of racing that, that you'd like to watch or like for your customers? Super lucky. I get to go to the 24-hour Le Mans with uh, Garrett next month. Uh, I went to a Formula One race with them. That was pretty cool. Um, I went to Indy. Borg Warner took me and my father to the Indy 500, 100th running of the, 100th running of the Indy 500, which was cool. But um, I honestly, like, in my downtime... So when I'm on during the week, when I'm working, it is racing from open my eyes until close my eyes. But when I'm not working, I lead a very different life, man. I, I mountain bike in the woods or in the mountains in Arizona. I surf. I live right down the street from the beach. Surfing is my obsession. I was surfing this morning from 5.30 a.m. till 7 a.m. Um, I take my kids to the skate park. Like I just, I, I love being outside and, and doing stuff like that. But, uh, you know, cars, cars are my obsession i just i have to keep myself in check i i can burn out when i'm doing cars seven days a week 12 hours a day i've been burned out in the past so i, I keep it it's uh five days a week and uh sometimes six you know I, you gotta you, everything's in moderation when did you when did you realize that that you had to kind of trim it down was it 2015 it was when i put the r14 in the shipping container that was a big year for me. Uh, my first son was uh, three years old. My second son was in my wife's belly. And I said, you know what? We're going to chill out. I had a disagreement with a promoter who ran some large events in New Jersey that same year. And I said, hey, we're good. I got some really good stuff going on. I don't need this in my life. I'm done. And I walked away. And I never turned back. And uh, at that time, I definitely had some heartburn about all of that. But looking back, I'm, I'm still really happy about how it all played out. I, I like the, um, you know, being more open-minded about other types of racing, especially because the three of us here at our core, you know, starting off as drag racers, thankfully, you know, still, we we set up our pop-up shops at a lot of events throughout the U.S., you know, every year for the past 
15, 20 years. Guys, you know it, man. That is a grind. Talk about burnout, man. I don't know how you guys do Thankfully, you know, we have a great team behind this. You know, it's not just one person going to every single event. You know, we rotate. And it's to the point in which, you know, me doing this full time, I, I look forward to going to the events. And thankfully, despite a lot of tracks closing, just seeing it from my own eyes, you know, there's a lot of people that still go to these drag racing events. There's, there are, there are some events that are sold out, which, you know, actually just in, you know, the news of Drag Illustrated, I believe the first two NHRA national events were sold out in Florida. And I believe it was their first two events. So, you know, just knowing like, awesome, you know, even though some tracks are deciding to close there, the sport is still well and alive, but I, I'm also in agreement, you know, like for the first few years of being an enthusiast in drag racing, I was very close-minded, like not nah, drag racing is where it's at. But now as being in this industry for over two, two decades, like I enjoy all types of racing. I was actually one of the fanboys that got onto the bandwagon of F1 because of Netflix during COVID and, you know, just things like that, you know, way more open-minded about all genres of racing, not just, you know, that was kind of a stigma around Eat Sleep Race when we started. Like, no, nah, Eat Sleep Race, that's just an import brand. They're just into Hondas. And it's kind of like all the cars in my driveway are Mopars <laughs> to this day, right? I just recently got back into Hondas. So it's kind of, you know, I think just a general notice to everybody within this industry. Just just be open-minded here. Yeah, and in life. It's hard. Right? Everybody. We're, we're programmed as a species to judge. We see things. We recognize it as a threat. We judge it. Like, all day, every day, your, your brain is making millions of decisions and just looking for threats. As you're driving around, you're looking for threats. And a lot of people perceive stuff as a threat when in fact, it's like, you know, we're all on the same team. Yeah. 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 I, th I think that's a great takeaway from this. Like we all love racing. We want, we don't want to see this go away. Jeff just dropped a whole lot of, you know, knowledge and, um, you know, key facts here of where the future could go if we're not all aware of you know what we're doing here but also you know like i said like all enthusiasts and business owners anyone involved in this industry should really play this podcast back once or twice because even just from a entrepreneur anyone trying to do anything level up in life like your eos and those extra classes or further education that you could be taking you know I'm going to be rewatching this once or twice myself. Stay hungry, man. Yeah. I like that. Settle. Stay hungry. Yeah. You know, hungry. I think uh, for a little bit of time, there's, there's, you know, it's ups and peaks and valleys of running a business, right? And sometimes we get complacent. And in hindsight, it's like being complacent will really put you behind if you're being complacent. And it really is, you always have to have that visionary person in front to making sure that you don't stay complacent yeah. or else you, you go out of business, right? Mediocrity um, sucks. <laughs> that's I'm, true. I don't know if this is something you would be willing to share, maybe even one or two. You mentioned core values are extremely important to full race. Could you share some of those? So one of ours is we understand the value of reputation and our reputation is probably our, our greatest asset. I think, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but we got customers in over a hundred countries and mm -hmm those customers think real highly of us and they are willing to tell their friends about us. And I think that that's a big part of the reason that we've stayed around because we have this reputation and we don't burn people. I will never burn a bridge. And while I might've pissed someone off here and there, like, dude, I will never burn a bridge. I will never do someone wrong. Uh, I'll pay people for what they're owed. Like I, I believe in good business and um, value of reputation is one of our core values. 
And, you know, I, I think it also speaks to probably anybody in this industry because this industry is so small, because everybody knows each other. You know, if you burn one bridge, you're done, period. Like, you just can't do it. And we know it. Like, you guys know guys who come and go. This industry just eats them up and spits them out. And that's that's people who didn't understand the value of reputation, you know? Before we wrap things up, anything extra you'd like to add? Um, Man, I could go on for hours, but... Dave. We we got as long as the memory cards on these cameras have. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say one last thing from a business perspective, and it's called the total addressable market, also known as a TAM. And for guys who are like, dude, all I got to do is is run sixes and I'm going to go sell $100 million worth of stuff, you got to realize that a total addressable market means that how many people are actually trying to run sixes or sevens or eights or whatever. It's It's not that many. And if you're actually starting to start a business and you want to do it in this space, building a business on CRXs is probably not the best idea because your total addressable market is fairly small and it's getting a whole lot smaller every day. There's less and less and less than CRXs. So looking at your total addressable market and using that to inform your decisions of where you want to place your bets is usually a good idea. Um, I am obviously as I mentioned, pretty big in the F-150 Raptor world. And the reason is Ford makes an F-150 every 30 seconds. And that truck has two turbos on it every 30 seconds. There is nothing quite like that volume out there. And eight out of 10 people who are going to buy a car this year are going to buy a truck or an SUV. They're not going to buy a car or a sedan or whatever you want to call it. So the market has changed and you need to be aware that total addressable market is going to dictate your ability to be successful. And if you can find a way to tap into a total addressable market that wants what you offer, can afford what you offer, and values that that unique value proposition that you're you're serving to your clients, that's how you find success in business. I like how you mentioned that with F one fifties. This probably answered that question. What is your favorite platform in terms of, you know, modifying cars? Is it, it changes a lot. Right now I'm pretty well, I love trucks. I didn't used to love trucks. I got into cars. I bought a pickup truck because I needed to move some crap in my mountain bike and my surfboards. And then I just found out I love trucks. And then I found out that everybody who has a truck modifies it. And then I found out that every truck that gets modified might have two turbos on it. And I was like, we're going to go do that. And Ford, we were really lucky. Ford loved what we were doing. And they put us front and center in their SEMA booth. They sold us a truck every year for a dollar. They sent us free engines and free transmissions and it was a game changer having Ford's backing. What year did that start? 20, 2009. Borg Warner sent us wow. prototype engines. They said, Ford's going to turn all these V8s into V6s with two turbos. All the V6s are going to become four cylinders with one turbo. And all the four cylinders are going to come three cylinders. Do you want in? And I was like, yes, I want it. And they're like, we're going to send you two prototype engines. you got to come out of pocket for all the development. I was like, done. And we did it. And they tested it in their lab. Well, the Ford team had the CFD engineer run crazy analysis. I learned more from that project than any other previous engineering exercise. They had every gas molecule identified and what happens in combustion. It was pretty wild. So we did that. And then they were like, okay, we're happy with you. And my team was like, that's it. So then I write a letter to Ford Marketing. I was like, we just did this project with you guys. What do you think? And they're like, oh, is this is this real? You really did that? Yeah, we really did that. So then they asked their engineering team, is this true? Yeah, it's true. All right, in full race, we get a truck for a dollar. 
We just had to bring it to SEMA. Okay, cool. And then the next year we did a car, the Focus RS and the Mustang and another F1, like just Raptor. It was so many vehicles that we did over these years. And that is what allowed us so that once people with F-150s finally figured out that they had turbos in their cars and then you buy a Raptor and everyone with a Raptor knows they have two turbos and then they got 37s on it and they had all this weight and it was like a given. We were just sitting there like, hey, we got it, you know, and um, we definitely have knockoffs, especially in the intercooler realm. But in the turbo, it's real hard to knock a turbo off well, especially when your supplier partner is Garrett. And, um, you know, there's certain aspects uh, certain components that are easier for somebody to, to, to copy. And I talked about that barrier to entry. If it's a product that somebody in their garage with a welder can make, they probably shouldn't make it, you know? And it's, it's, we just discontinued our intakes because there's a hundred thousand intakes for F-150s. And we discontinued like catch cans because there's a hundred catch cans for F-150s. So it's like, oh, well, well, whatever. We don't need to mess with that. We'll just stick to our core focus and if it's related to the turbocharger, that's what Forrest is going to do. And we're going to be the best in the world at it. I, I would not want to be our competitor. You mentioned um, Ford, you know, b- building tons of trucks, cars with turbos. What about the question of embracing EVs? Because we've seen the F-150 now is in, available in an EV my brother-in-law is a hardcore Tesla fanatic. I borrowed his car last week, took my wife up to New York City and back in his in his uh, Model 3 and performance, whatever. It was fun. I liked it. It's torquey. But there is no replacement for combustion. A combustion will be around for a long, long time. Despite the regulatory environment that's going on, combustion has things that are really hard to displace with EVs. Now, combustion won't be around forever. But right now, what you're seeing is combustion is about 97% of cars sold. And 3% is EV, right? There, there's a number of figures that are thrown out, but that is my understanding from the people who are building cars and car parts. That number in 2030 is going to start going like this, right? There's going to be more EVs, but what is called the car park, which is the existing amount of cars that are driven on the road every day, there are so many combustion cars that it's like, EVs is this little teeny tiny freckle on a flea's back, and then there's this elephant. And um, EV is coming. It is happening. And in the year 2050, everything's going to be EV. But that's the year 2050. And there's a lot of question marks about what happens from now until then. Because, you know, me knowing what I know and understanding how much resources and carbon are required to create an EV battery... It just proves that the EV battery technology is immature. It is not ready. Until we have solid state batteries, it's 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 a, a tough proposition to, to say you gotta cram your car full of lithium. Twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars with a lithium in a in a high end car, maybe ten or twelve thousand dollars with a lithium in a lower end car. That's just that's, that's crazy. So um I listen, EV's happening for a lot of reasons. If you're a a small trip person going around the town ev is superior it costs less there's less maintenance less vibration more torque you know low speed if i lived in new york city i'd probably have a tesla but you know i um i'm addicted to turbos that's my thing so there's nothing quite like a a turbo combustion engine especially if you're running on ethanol i'm gonna backstep here back when uh you started working with ford and they mentioned hey we're gonna have all these new setups with these turbos can we send you a motor and you do the development what um what did they take with your development did they 
implement like what? So this is my belief. This is completely unofficial. I don't know if I can get in trouble for this. I believe that my DNA is in every Mustang EcoBoost, Bronco, Ranger, and Focus RS. I believe that the cylinder head design that they created was a direct result of the twin scroll um, work that we, we pro provided them. I don't know that it's factual. I've never gotten confirmation with them, but based off of the way things progressed, I think that we proved to them that twin scroll works and they're like, holy crap, we need to do this. And they redesigned their cylinder head to be twin scroll in a way that nobody's ever seen before. I don't know if you've ever seen a Ford 2.3 liter four cylinder EcoBoost. It is a weird looking cylinder head, but it works pretty well. So yeah, I, I think that was, was the direct result of the of the work we do with them. That's cool. And that also goes back to the conversation earlier provide value, right? Yeah. These I mean, guys come to you. We don't get any credit for that. I didn't even get compensated for that. So really? they, they took our twin scroll concept and put it out in the world. And for me, I'm cool with it. My DNA is on all these cars. I see a Ford Focus, whatever, RS cruise by. I'm like, man, that's cool. I know exactly what is going on there. But on the other side, they sold us cars for a dollar for years. So, dude, we're cool. Well, you didn't know that was going to happen when you agreed to, you know, doing the R&D. Sometimes, sometimes you just got to say, how often does Ford show up at your front door knocking? And I say, all right, well, I'll take a gamble. I'll throw $20,000 at this. Yeah, I think you're the second person to say that with uh, when we had a podcast with Gar Gary Gardello, and he said, when a big company comes knocking at your door, you're not going to say no to that, right? So, Well, uh, so let me finish this podcast with one comment, and it's, it's saying no. Saying no is one of the most important things you could possibly do. And the reason is when it comes to focus, you cannot be a shotgun in business. You need to be a highly precise rifle. You need to find a target and kill it. And if you're just going to spray stuff, it, it doesn't work. And if you're saying yes to opportunities and yes to everything that comes along, you are not going to succeed. You have to be laser precise in this is a yes, everything else is a no. And I'm, I struggle with that. I think it, probably anybody who's, who starts a business struggles with that. It's you got to be completely committed to a direction and use that as a filter in EOS. They call that the core focus. And for us, it's, it's performance turbo products. If, if it isn't, and, and it's actually a little more specific than that, but if it isn't like dead clear to you and your team of what it is that we are going to do for this, this world, then, you know, you're, you, you got to say no to stuff because you're just going to say yes to things. And it's going to look, you're going to lose momentum and you're going to lose time above all else is time. No, I like how you said that. We got 24 hours in the day. You can't say yes to everything. Right. Well, that's so a take good that way back, to... friend. When that, yeah. when the big companies come, you got you got to look well, at it a little bit more deeply. No, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as long as they're within my my focus area, I'm going to say yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good way to end this podcast. Uh, Jeff, thank you for coming out here. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. And you know, where can where can we you know where can customers come find Full Race? Uh, FullRace.com fullrace.com any social media dash or without yeah we're on social media barely we we invest a little in social media it was just the fact for us is uh when we when we invest in our website it makes it makes people happy it makes google happy so uh really where we're working at is on our own website all right so it's full-race.com yeah if you can't find the dash you can type it in without the dash too okay fine okay <laughs> all right you, you thought of that made sure everyone could find you all right so we're going to wrap this podcast up once again, we got Brian ESR, Frankie 5 ESR, and Jeff from Full Race. Thanks a lot for having me, boys. Thank if you, you guys enjoyed this, make sure you comment, like, subscribe, and wherever you're listening or watching this podcast, you know, send us a DM, send us a comment. Appreciate you guys. Later.